He is risen. risen Amen. Romans 4.25 offers a a simple statement about what it is that we celebrate today. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. That verse, that simple line encapsulates the gospel, the heart and soul of what we believe about what Jesus Christ did, about his work on the cross and his resurrection. The verses that lead up to Romans 4.25 that sort of make the case for getting to that conclusion have a lot to do with how it is that you and I experience what it is that Jesus Christ did, how we relate to what Jesus Christ did, how we are made right with God based on what Jesus Christ did. The benefits of the the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are acquired by us in a way because of what he accomplished. And, And those verses deal with how that happens, how it is that we receive from what Jesus did. Most people, when they consider how it is that we get in a right relationship with God based on the work of Jesus Christ, will tend to categorize that answer, how one is right with God, in one of two categories, either working or believing, either working to try to earn or believing by faith. Two two activities, working and believing, that in terms of general activities, we do all the time. We, We work. We work at our job. We, we work to accomplish things. We work to be productive. We work to finish activities. You work at school on assignments. We all understand what work is. It's something we do every day, and so is belief. We believe certain things every day. We go about life with certain beliefs. I enter the intersection with a green light believing that that means cross traffic should be stopped. It doesn't always work that way, but that's at least what I believe when I go in. I I believe that if I eat right and I I try to live a relatively healthy lifestyle, that it it should accrue some benefit to me in the long term. I I believe that if I work hard at school or at my job, that there's, there's usually some reward for that. But when it comes to man's relationship to God, that's really what Romans 4 is addressing before it comes to the resurrection. And coming to the issue of of how people believe they can be made right with God, by working to earn God's favor, or by believing and receiving God's favor. In fact, I would dare suggest that nearly everyone here this morning has some sense of of afterlife, of eternity, of being made right with God, and and in some form or another, that, that sense of what happens when you one day stand before God comes down to either working or believing, either trying to impress God or trying to present to God works, accomplishments, or coming to him in in faith by virtue of belief. If you're on the working side of things, your attitude tends to be God is looking for a a decent person who's lived an okay life, who's generally followed that, that golden rule, sort of treat others as you would have them treat you, and hasn't done anything too heinous, has overall lived a pretty decent life and is able to say to God, look, see, I, nothing real bad here, certainly not deserving of, 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 of terrible punishment of some form. And if, on the other hand, you are coming to God based on belief, it is, it is on the conviction that I could never work enough. I could never do enough. I could never present God with enough in order to compel him that somehow I'm worthy, that I've earned his approval. There must be another way. Because God alone is perfect. 
God alone is perfect in justice and mercy and, and love, and, and he knows me. And he knows my wrongdoing. He, he knows my sin. He knows that ultimately I've done plenty of stuff out of selfish ambition, out of hatred, out of bitterness, out of breaking his law. He knows ultimately that, that, that I really can't present him much that isn't marred ultimately by my sin. Believing is rooted in utter dependence. Working says, I can do something by the way I live, by, by what I show to God, I can somehow impress him. Believing says, I have to fall before him and, and trust entirely in him and his promises because I can't bring anything to the table to impress him. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans 4. We'll put the verses up here as well, but Romans chapter 4. And, and before it gets to the resurrection and how that figures into this, we see this clash between working and believing to earn God's approval. Working to try to, to earn something, believing to receive. And really the conflict finds its ultimate resolution in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul who wrote this will end at the resurrection because ultimately that is where this all climaxes. And that is what we are here to celebrate today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is of supreme importance. What you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ will determine your eternal destiny. It will matter when you stand before God one day, what you believe. One of the, the chief characters in Romans 4, oddly enough for us, is not Jesus. It is a man who lived 2,000 years before Jesus. It is Abraham. The Apostle Paul is, is going back to a figure who was crucial to the Jewish people as he's writing this letter to the churches at Rome and the many Jewish people who are in those churches. He brings them back to a man who was revered, who was a patriarch, who was historic to the Jewish faith, also historic to Christianity and to Islam, for that matter. They all look to him for significance. For the Jewish people, ethnic Jews descended from Abraham through his son Isaac. And so there's a large number of Jews who are reading this letter that Paul has written. And so he says, I want to I remind you of someone that I know you know, that I know you've read about. And so at the very beginning of Romans 4, and we won't go through the whole chapter, just a few verses till we get to the end, but Romans 4, verse 1, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, the one we descended from? For if Abraham was justified, if he was approved, we might say, by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. Here's this conflict between working and believing. Paul's already been addressing it in Romans chapter 3. The, the whole discussion there is, is this idea of people believing that I have to be a good person, that yes, Jesus died, yes, Jesus rose again, and, and I believe that that happened, but, but God still requires works of me. God still expects me to do something if I'm going to ultimately win his approval and stand before him and pass his judgment. You need to be a good person so you'll be accepted by him. But Romans 3 ultimately makes the point that no matter what you do, it's ultimately futile because God sees you and I as lawbreakers. That's really what he concludes in Romans chapter 3, that no matter how much performance you bring, you and I still sin. You and I still disobey God. He is perfect, true, just, right, and we're not. And so Romans 3 ultimately concludes and says we're, we're hopeless if it comes to trying to earn God's approval because we all fall short. We all sin. We all defy God. And so that's what leads to this discussion of Abraham. 
And he says to his readers, let's talk about your hero here for a moment. How was he approved by God? How was this one that you look to, that we all agree, the writer of this, the readers, we all agree Abraham was approved by God in some way. So how did that happen? How did he get right with God? Did he earn God's favor by doing good works? If so, what he says here in verse 2 is, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Abraham would be no different than you and I. Look, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at my, my good deeds. Look at my charitable donations. Look at all the kindness that I've showed to other people. Look at all the times I've allowed someone to merge without being angry at them for cutting me off. And I just graciously let them merge. See all that? So I've got something to boast about, right? I was kind today, once or twice maybe. But he says even here, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Because his point is, even, even Abraham knew, even if Abraham did have a, a resume of some good deeds, there, there was no way he was going to stand before God and say, hey God, look at this. Can you imagine anyone being this good? I imagine God could imagine someone being perfect. And so he knows. Abraham can't stand before God and boast. It'd be like me going up to, to Bryce Harper and saying, you want to see somebody hit a baseball, you should come watch me in a batting cage sometime, you know? I can show you a thing or two about hitting a baseball. I mean, he might smile and be polite, but, but you'd know I was, I was being pretty foolish at that moment, and, and there wasn't much to display. But that's the same sort of attitude here. Of How are you going to boast when you stand before perfection? What can you possibly bring to impress God when you've broken his law? And that's the point of verse 2. No one can stand before him and talk about goodness. That's it's crazy talk. And so verse 3 says, for what does the scripture say? Now remember, this is about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That verse harkens all the way back to near the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 15, verse 6, when God says this to Abraham. Abraham, if you know the story, was a childless old man who was married to Sarah, who was a childless old woman. They were at the stage of life where biology told them it was done as far as having children went. They longed for children. They desired children. Particularly in that culture, Abraham would have loved a son to be an heir of all that he had. God had showed him favor time and time again, and Abraham had much, but he lacked a son to be an heir, to pass it down to. Both of them knew that even though they had seen all kinds of examples of God's favor, children were not going to happen except that God made a promise to Abraham. We know the story from the book of Genesis. God takes Abraham outside at night and he says, look up at the stars and count them. Well, if you've ever been at a place outside of our area, out in a more rural area, and you look up, it's, it's astounding, right? No one can count it, and that was God's point. As countless as the stars are, so shall your descendants be, God said to Abraham. That's a remarkable promise to an old man who is sure that he is well past, his, he and his wife are well past the age of having children. For Abraham, that had to, on a physical level, seem impossible. If he and his wife hadn't had children by that stage in life, they weren't going to have them in, future, in the future. But the fact is, Scripture says, Abraham believed God. As absurd as it seemed, when God took him outside that night and had him look up, 
Abraham didn't go, nah, there's no way. Abraham looked up and thought, that's unbelievable. I have descendants like this because he believed God. He trusted God's promise. So Genesis 15, 6 is what Paul's quoting here in Romans 4. Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Counting it as, as righteous is, is essentially what we talk about when we talk about receiving God's approval. God is the only one who is perfectly just and right in all that he does. For us to be declared right has to be because God puts that declaration on us in some way, not because we inherently are. God has to make us righteous. God must approve us. People want God to approve of them. They want him to regard them in some way as being right. And the trouble is, Romans 3 has already made this clear, there is no one righteous. Righteousness is like a standard. It's like a ruler. It's always going to be 12 inches long. And righteousness, by God's definition, doesn't flex and change with the times. It doesn't adapt to each culture. God says, this is what is right and true. I am righteous. You are not. And so we need God's approval in some way that he has to give to us, not in a way that we can earn because we are not perfect. All of us fall short. Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. We must receive God's approval as a gift of his grace because we can't work for it, because we can't ultimately show him anything that will impress him to that point. There must be a righteousness that he gives to us. And he says here that Abraham received it for faith in response to hearing a promise of the impossible, and believing it. And saying, okay, God, I take you at your word. It was Abraham's faith, not his works, that delivered him. It was because Abraham believed God for something that was utterly impossible for man. And he believed God. When God promised Abraham children, he believed, and his faith is ultimately what saved him. Later on in Romans chapter 4, when you get down to verse 21, it says of Abraham, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham had no confidence in his flesh. Abraham knew that he and Sarah, that, that this was not possible. And so he rested his confidence entirely in God. He had tried to have children. He had prayed for children. They hadn't happened. And so at this point, all Abraham has left is to fully surrender himself to the promise of God and trust him completely. And so it says he was fully convinced that God would do this. He believed God for the impossible. And God not only blessed him with a son and descendants as numerous as the stars, but God counted Abraham as righteous. In response to Abraham's faith, God declared him to be righteous. Drop all the way down to near the end of the chapter, verse 23, Romans 4, verse 23. Here's where... We and the resurrection fit in all this. It says, but the words, it was counted to him, to Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. The words that was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. So Romans 4.23 is saying, listen, you, you've read this history about Abraham. You know this story, and you know that he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And, and, and God said that, 
But that was not just for the sake of Abraham. That was for our sake too. God was establishing a pattern at this point. What happened to Abraham 2,000 years earlier matters for you and I today because God is establishing something at this point and saying, you can't bring me works or sacrifices or activities or attendance at church or whatever it is. Ultimately, here it is. Believe me. Trust in me. It wasn't just said to Abraham. He says it was for our sake as well. Do you want to know God? Do you want to be made right with God? Do you want to leave this earth knowing you can stand before your creator and be right with him? And Paul says, follow Abraham's example. Believe God. Trust in him and what he says. God longs to give his approval to people, but he will only do it on that basis of faith. God makes promises, and he says to believe them. And in this case, he's very specific about what it is for you and I. Because he says here, the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. There's the resurrection. There's what we are celebrating this morning. That God says, Abraham believed and was counted as righteous. You too can be counted as righteous if you will believe in the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We're called to believe in God, and even more specifically, to believe in a God who gives life and who raises the dead. It's a remarkable thing that we tend to take lightly if we, we've read the accounts and we know Easter and we understand the resurrection, and yet Scripture is really calling us to pause there. Believe in one who can raise the dead, specifically who raised his son, Jesus Christ. Abraham believed in God's power to raise the dead. Scripture says there were two ways Abraham believed in that power. The first way was in the sense of the, the first belief in the promise. Because as far as Abraham was concerned, his body was dead when it came to being able to see a child come from his seed. His wife's body was dead in terms of, of giving birth to a child. It says that in Romans 4.18, that Abraham's hope in God for the birth of a son was totally unrealistic. Because verse 18 of Romans 4 says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. That, that is saying that when Abraham received that promise from God and believed it. For him to put his hope in that was contrary to everything that was reasonable at that point. Putting hope in that was just putting hope against hope. How, how in the world can that happen? And yet he believed it. He put his hope in, in the fact that, that even though that body seemed dead. Look at, in fact, just look at verse 19 for a second of Romans 4. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He, he looked at everything that was in front of him that made perfect sense and said, shouldn't happen, can't happen, doesn't happen. And yet it says his faith didn't weaken. He believed God. He clung to God's promise. He believed it and held on to it, and his faith didn't waver. Then after God did give Abraham a son, that, that boy, Isaac, who was born to him, Scripture also tells us that, that Abraham was convinced that, listen, if God should take Isaac away from me, 
if, if Isaac should die, then I believe that God will raise Isaac from the dead. He believed in the resurrection power of God. Hebrews 11:19, talking about Abraham, says, He considered that God was able even to raise him, that is his son Isaac, from the dead. There's Abraham again, and one of the things he's looking at in God is not only the promise of a child that is miraculous, but also standing before God saying, listen, if you should take this child, if that's what you require of me, is to give this child over to you and you should take his life, then, then I believe you'll raise him from the dead. You'll have to in order to keep your promise, and I'm resting entirely in your promise. You and I are called to believe in a God who raises the dead, most specifically to believe in a God who raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the grave. 2,000 years ago, our Savior gave his life to be crucified on a cross in front of crowds. The, 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 the disciples saw it. The people in Jerusalem saw it. Jesus Christ was put to death in an agonizing execution, was buried in a tomb that was sealed and guarded by a Roman guard, and everything was established to say, he is dead, and we're done with him. There is, there is no more of Jesus Christ. And then he rose from the grave, and his disciples saw him. And 1 Corinthians says some 500 people saw Jesus Christ ministering and alive and risen, and it changed everything. The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman guards would, would have done anything to stop that story from spreading. And yet Jesus Christ was alive. And so it says there at the end of Romans 4, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's where we started. That's, that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus Christ died and he rose again. And Paul explains to us here why those took place. This, it's widely thought that Romans 4.25 was like a creed for the early church. It was something they recited even in worship, that statement, who Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, because in that little sentence, it just sums the gospel right up. It just describes it. So it was just like this, this creed that explains the good news. He was delivered for our trespasses. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what God had promised hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Isaiah when he said that because of our sin, he would need to send a, a lamb, a perfect lamb, that he would send one who would come in our place, who would be sacrificed in our place, who would give his life for us. In Isaiah, God said he would send his servant who would be despised and rejected by men. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Transgressions, trespasses, iniquities, they all are fancy words for one thing, sin. It is you and I breaking God's law. It is you and I doing things that God has not directed us to do or defying the things that God has told us to do and doing our own thing. We disobey God. We rebel against God's rule. We, we hate to be told what to do, and so we, we see commandments, and they, they sort of uh, just work something up in us that wants to oppose them and wants to break them just because we are rebellious by nature. And we defy God. And we are lawbreakers. And the punishment, God says, all throughout Scripture is, is death. We ultimately stand condemned 
and judged by him for sinning against him. That's why we cannot work our way to God's approval. Instead, we must believe that Jesus Christ was that perfect lamb who was given in our place, who was sacrificed on our behalf. Romans 8.32 says, God the Father did not spare his own son. He gave his own beloved son in order to suffer on the cross for us and to bear the penalty that you and I deserve. His suffering on the cross was not some mere moral example. It was not some picture. It was not some, some story to be retold in movies in the sense that this is just some great act of humanity. It was the suffering of a sinless son of God, Savior, on behalf of those who would come to him in faith, the taking of their sin on himself and him being crushed for our sin. So not only can we not earn God's righteousness by our deeds, our, our sin has already earned for us condemnation and punishment, the punishment of death. And God puts his own son in our place on the cross as our substitute. And so Jesus Christ stands in our place and pays the ransom that you and I could not pay. We have no capacity to do so. He was sinless. And he was, as Paul says here, delivered up for our trespasses. The last part of verse 25 says he was raised for our justification. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the two go hand in hand. You don't have a gospel without both. Both must be there. The, the suffering of a sinless servant in our place for our sins and the resurrection of that servant for our justification, the rising of that servant from the grave. Jesus not only poured out his life according to the plan of God and was dead and entombed, but he was raised. And that resurrection is what confirms that the work of Jesus Christ, the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, was sufficient to pay the price for our sins. It was enough to stand in our place and pay the full price of all of our sin. The resurrection, when it reminds us again that we are believing in God who raised Jesus from the dead and he was raised for our justification, is that God the Father raises his Son fully satisfied that what the Son has done on the cross is sufficient for you and I to trust in Jesus Christ and to receive eternal life and forgiveness. It is finished, Jesus cried from the cross. The debt of sin has been paid takes us all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God's promise is of life for those who will put their faith in him. Abraham was, was justified. The, the description here in verse 25, he was raised for our justification. Abraham received righteousness. That, that is justification. Justification is a, is a legal term. To be justified is to not be declared innocent, because we're not innocent. We're sinners. There's no way we are ever declared innocent, but what happens is our guilt is removed, and we are now given a right standing before God. And so we are declared justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Still sinners, but now those who have been redeemed and whose penalty has been paid and who are able to stand before God as those who are justified. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. The ultimate power of sin is to kill, is to destroy. Sin seeks to destroy whatever it touches. It has been that way since the beginning when God created a perfect creation 
set Adam and Eve in the midst of it, and said, it is very good. Everything about this creation reflects the perfection of God. And then what happened? Man sinned. And creation and man all begin to die. Death comes through sin. Therefore, if death is to be defeated, the power of sin must be defeated, and only a sinless Savior can be the one to disarm sin, can be the one to defeat the power of sin by virtue of his own sacrifice. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He crushed sin on the cross, stripping it of its power, so that Paul can later write in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your sting? For those who believe in Jesus Christ, death is simply a passing from this life into the eternal presence of our Creator, standing before our Savior who gave his life in our place because the power of sin, that, that, that death and sin connection has been disarmed because our Savior defeated sin on the cross. If Jesus Christ has been risen to new and eternal life from death, then so will all who believe in him. We have that hope. And so we, we joyously celebrate the resurrection. We are singing today and we are glad today as we are every day as believers in Jesus Christ because we have hope that surpasses this life. Because we have hope that one day when we stand before our creator, there will not be, um, well, I did this and I know I did and I didn't do any of these things and, and, I, and I tried really hard. We don't have a chance. We will be able to stand before our Savior and say, I believed your promise. You sent a Savior and he died in my place, and you said you would forgive me and give me eternal life if I believed that he died for my sins and rose for my justification. I believe. I believe. It, it might seem from the world's perspective, just like it did for Abraham, to be, that's ridiculous. Doesn't God want performance? And yet he says he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believe on the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If this morning you are the least bit uncertain that if you were to, to die today or this week or this month and stand before God, you're not, you're not sure what you would bring to him, what you would say to him, and you, you might try to give him a resume of some sort, try to prove yourself somehow. Can I appeal to you today that Romans 4.25 makes it as simple as can be. Believe on Jesus Christ that he was delivered up to crucifixion for your trespasses and raised for your justification. Put your entire faith in his hope and his promise because there's no hope in trying to work for God's approval. Remember how Abraham's body, as it describes in Romans 4, was as good as dead when it came to childbearing sort of purposes, and yet he believed God? So you too are described in Scripture as being dead in your sin apart from Christ, unable to will yourself by your own good deeds and your own merit. You can't do it because you're dead in sin. All you can do is what Abraham did. Believe. Take God at his word. Trust in him. 1 Peter 1.3, your brother read it, Stuart read it at the beginning of the service. The hope that we have, the praise that we have to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope rests in that resurrection and the fact that it, it confirms that his death was sufficient and we stake it all on that. New life and hope are ours because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. My sins are forgiven. 
R.A. Torrey put it this way. My sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement, the covering over that sin is as high as heaven. The price Jesus Christ paid on the cross was sufficient to cover our sins, and the proof of that lies in God mightily raising his son from the dead. Do you believe in the life-giving power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you're already trusting in Jesus Christ, then, then I want to encourage you this morning that there are probably areas in your life where you are discouraged or you're battling with sin or, or you're dealing with some area where you just feel hopeless about. Maybe it's the salvation of a family member or a loved one. Can I, can I urge you back to this passage as well? To believe in God, to trust in God, to, to renew your faith in his work, in whatever situation that is, to believe that the, the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in our lives as well through his spirit. And if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, then today is the day. This Easter will be the most glorious celebration of all for you if this day you will believe in a God who raised his son from the dead for your justification. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning with such gratitude. We who would be in such utterly hopeless straits apart from Jesus Christ. Lord, it is, it is a, a fearful thing to imagine going through life and one day facing death and standing before you and, and, and trying to, to prove that somehow we're worthy of an okay from the perfect God of the universe. Father, thank you for coming to us in our helplessness and in our sin, being dead in sin and lost. For taking us by the hand as you took Abraham outside and showed him the stars and taking us by the hand and showing us in Scripture that there is a Savior who has stood in our place and taken our sin. Now you call us as you did Abraham on that starry night to believe, to simply trust and put faith in a God who delivered up his own son for our sin and raised him for our justification. Lord, we pray that you would do your saving work in the hearts of people here this day, that you would encourage your people this day again by seeing your power in raising Jesus in, in your great plan of redemption. Might it remind us again that whatever our circumstances are, your plan and your power are greater and that you indeed are at work, and we can trust you, and we can believe you for your promises. Cause us to rest and rejoice in you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.